In our first two episodes, we discussed how Coriolanus is both the ultimate Roman and a man with no place in Rome. In the following speeches, we see how this central dilemma of the play is established, as we hear characters describe a fully cooperative community and a set of highly exceptional heroic ideals that elevate the warrior class above all others. Ideals that Coriolanus has internalised too thoroughly ever to compromise. Philip Lorentz, Professor of English at Cornell University, guides our discussion. First, in this scene from Act 1, Menenius describes the ideal cooperative political community. The plebeians have come out in armed rebellion against the patricians, whom they blame for their lack of food. Menenius's fable of the belly shows that the patricians share with and nourish the entire city, at least in Menenius's interpretation of it. I shall tell you a pretty tale. It may be you have heard it. But since it serves my purpose, I will venture to stale it a little more. There was a time when all the body's members rebelled against the belly, and thus accused it, that only like a gulf did it remain in the midst of the body, idle and unactive, still cupboarding the viand, never bearing like labor with the rest wherein the other instruments did see and hear, devise, instruct, walk, feel, and mutually participate, did minister unto the appetite and affection common of the whole body. The belly answered, to the discontented members, the mutinous parts that envied his receipt, even so most fitly as you malign our senators for that, they are not such as you. The former agents, if they did complain, what could the belly answer? Know me this, good friend. Your most grave belly was deliberate, not rash like his accusers, and thus answered. Tis true, my incorporate friends, quoth he, that I receive the general food at first, which you do live upon, and fit it is because I am the storehouse and the shop of the whole body. But if you do remember, I send it through the rivers of your blood, even to the court, the heart, to the seat of the brain, and through the cranks and offices of man, the strongest nerves and small inferior veins from me receive that natural competency whereby they live. And though at once you, my good friends, this says the belly mark me, though all at once cannot see what I do deliver out to each, yet I can make my audit up that all from me do back receive the flower of all, and leave me but the brand. The senators of Rome are this good belly, and you the mutinous members. For examine their counsels and their cares, Digest things rightly touching the wheel of the common, and you shall find no public benefit which you receive, but it proceeds or comes from them to you, and no way from yourselves. What do you think? You, the great toe of this assembly. I, the great toe. Why the great toe? 
for that being one of the lowest, basest, poorest of this most wise rebellion, thou goest foremost. Thou rascal that are worst in blood to run, leads first to win some vantage. But make you ready your stiff bats and clubs. Rome and her rats are at the point of battle, and one side must have bail. Hail, noble Martius. Thanks. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues? that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs. The citizens are protesting the food shortages that they believe the rich are causing. And they're about to get violent when Menenius Agrippa, who, although a patrician, is a rather well-liked older man and has a good way with the people, he asks them what they're doing or whether they want to undo themselves with that threat of violence. Uh, and... Striking against the Roman state, he tells them, is like railing against the gods. They're the ones causing the famine, the gods. It's bad weather. The helms of the state care for you like fathers, he tells the people. Care for them, they respond. If the wars eat us not up, they will. That's all the love that they bear us. At this, Menenius tells them he'll tell them a pretty tale which is a well-known fable that has many sources, including Aesop's fables, and was already something of a commonplace in, in uh, Roman times, not to mention in Shakespeare's times. Nevertheless, what Shakespeare does with it is interesting. So Menenius tells them, I shall tell you a pretty tale, and maybe you've heard it, but since it serves my purpose, I will venture to stale it a little bit more. He doesn't just tell the people the tale, he'll go on to interpret it since, as he says, interpretation will serve his purpose. And this will take us to the central uh, conflict of the play, which is the power of interpretation, which as any actor will tell you in the theater, is also the same thing as saying the power to play a role. This is the thing that political success hinges on in Rome. And this is the thing that it turns out for Coriolanus He's absolutely unwilling to do to allow himself to present that self or to have that self presented to others for approval on a kind of stage. Menenius, on the other hand, is more willing to go along with it. And in the course of his interpretation of the belly fable, he's raising a lot of questions about how we are to think of the relationship among the different classes, the, the citizens, the patricians, the Senate and the people that they rule over. It's a tale that presents the hierarchy of government, not at, at the top, in the head, as is common, but in the center, in the stomach. There was a time when all the body's members rebelled against the belly and accused it that like a gulf, it did remain in the midst of the body, idle and unactive unactive, a word that Shakespeare only uses here and nowhere else in a play that's all about the meaning of action. And I just want to call your attention to that image of the belly being simultaneously the most important part of the body, the center of the body at which all nourishment is stored and cared for and presumably flows, although here it does not. And also a description of that center as like a gulf a gap, 
uh, an emptiness, a kind of nothing. Coriolanus is a play of gaps and the desire to fill them. Think, for example, of the wounds in his body in which, in order to be approved consul of, he has to expose to the Roman audience and allow them to, as they say, put their tongues into those wounds, which means technically to give him their voices, their votes, but poetically it clearly means to speak for the significance of his body, to give his body political meaning, something that, as I mentioned, he's absolutely unwilling to do. He believes that he is in control of his own body and that's enough meaning. And this is the um, gap of translation that Shakespeare is exploring, the inability that the title character has of translating his sense of selfhood from one sphere of life, the sphere of war, into another, which is the sphere of meaning and rhetoric. In Act One, Coriolanus is dispatched to the wars against the Volskis. While he is away fighting, his wife Virgilia and his mother Volumnia wait for him at home, and Volumnia explains to her daughter-in-law how she raised Coriolanus to see war as his life's fulfilment. A brief anecdote about his son gives us a glimpse of what Coriolanus's own childhood might have been like, and how Volumnius' ambitious warrior ethic is now being passed down to another generation. If my son were my husband, I should freely rejoice in that absence wherein he won honour than in the embracements of his bed where he would show most love. When yet he was but tender-bodied and the only son of my womb, when youth with comeliness plucked all gaze his way, when for a day of king's entreaties a mother should not sell him an hour from her beholding, I, considering how honour would become such a person, that it was no better than picture-like to hang by the wall if renown made it not stir, was pleased to let him seek danger where he was like to find fame. To a cruel war I sent him, from whence he returned his brows bound with oak. I tell thee, daughter, I sprang not more in joy at first hearing he was a man-child than now in first seeing he had proved himself a man. But had he died in the business, madam, how then? Then his good report should have been my son. I therein would have found issue. Hear me profess sincerely. Had I a dozen sons, each in my love alike, and none less dear than thine and my good Martius, I had rather had eleven die nobly for their country than one voluptuously surfeit out of action. Methinks I hear hither your husband's drum. See him pluck Alphidius down by the hair, as children from a bear the Volskis shunning him. Methinks I see him stamp thus, and call thus, Come on, you cowards, you were got in fear, though you were born in Rome. His bloody brow, with his mailed hand then wiping forth he goes, like to a harvestman that's tasked to mow, or all, or lose his hire. His bloody brow? Oh, Jupiter, no blood. Away, you fool. It more becomes a man than guilt his trophy. The breasts of Hecuba, when she did suckle Hector, looked not lovelier than Hector's forehead when it spit forth blood at Grecian sword contemning. Oh, my word, the father's son. I'll swear tis a very pretty boy. 
Oh, my troth, I looked upon him a Wednesday, half an hour together. Has such a confirmed countenance. <laughs> I saw him run after a gilded butterfly, and when he caught it, he let it go again. And after it again, and over and over, he comes and up again, catched it again. Or whether his fall enraged him, or how twas, he did so set his teeth and tear it. Oh, <laughs> I warrant how he mammocked it. This is a volumnia that's almost entirely Shakespeare's creation. The historical volumnia is very passive and not a central figure in Plutarch's source. Shakespeare transforms her into probably the most uh, compelling and fascinating character of the play. If there is one embodiment of Romanness in the play, one fulfillment of the ideals of valor and stoicism and the approval of honor above all else, including love and marital um, connection and warmth, it is Volumnia, the, the hero's mother. She is probably the, the greatest Roman in a play of Roman warriors. So Volumnia is very much the figure at the center of this play. And her exchange with Coriolanus's wife, uh, Virgilia, and her friend's account of seeing Coriolanus's son chasing a butterfly is a, a very important clue into why Coriolanus is the way he is. So back in Rome, as Volumnia sits with her friend Valeria and Coriolanus's wife, Virgilia, contemplating how he's doing out there on the battlefield. Valeria recounts the story of watching Coriolanus's son chase a but butterfly. Oh, my word, the father's son, I'll swear it is a very pretty boy. I saw him run after a gilded butterfly, gold-decorated butterfly, and when he caught it, he let it go again, and after it again, and over and over he comes, and up again, and catched it again or whether his fall enraged him, or how t'was, he did so set his teeth and tear it. Oh, I warrant how he mammicked it. This image of uh, young Marcius chasing the butterfly, of course, an image of beauty, uh, fragility, uh, lightness, and nature, catching it and letting it go again and again and again in, in a situation reminiscent of Freud's description of the infant's uh, first experimentation with absence and presence, which is uh, about repetition as a technique for <laughs> coping with absence, leads to the child's inevitable frustration. Enragement is actually the word um, that's used and the tearing apart of the butterfly in yet another term, unique to this play, the use of mammic as a verb. Oh, how he mammicked it. Young Martius tears apart the beautiful butterfly in frustration, uh, to which Valeria responds, tis a noble child. It's a key reminder of what's considered noble in such a world. And it certainly gives us a sense of what Coriolanus's upbringing must have been like itself. It's Additionally, a metaphor that will take on its own life in the play in relation to the entire question of change. Coriolanus has been described as resistant to change. He's 
unable to adapt from one area to another. He's inflexible about who he is as an identity. He's resistant to transformation. The word that Ovid uses um, for that, of course, is metamorphosis. And the butterfly image clearly introduced here in a kind of beautiful, horrible way is something that itself is the product of metamorphosis. This is the image that the play is going to conclude with when we see the ultimate metamorphosis of Coriolanus from a human being to arguably something quite different. The whole question of whether Coriolanus changes, does he grow up or does he remain in a way the boy who's rewarded for tearing apart these beautiful creatures and, and, and is unable to develop and mature. And what I wanted to ask was whether there's a gap in between the roles that we play, the, the culturally defined roles that we strive to achieve, and the reality of, of a world that's inevitably, inevitably going to show the shortcomings of those roles or the insufficiencies of those roles. It's an image that we've seen a couple of times already, the belly fable as a gulf or a gap at the heart of the state. Coriolanus himself will describe the gap twixt his mind and his body. And whether other than ideology that provides Coriolanus with his own script of what it's like to be a man, whether there are other forms that are competing forms, and, and the main one that I have in mind is art. Volumnia seems to find beauty in the most tremendous violence and things like pictures that hang on the wall, useless for their inactivity. And we see this in the exchange that she has with Coriolanus's wife. She has an image, his bloody brow with his mailed hand, then wiping forth he goes like to a harvestman that's tasked to mow or all or lose his hire. This can really only be described as a startling fantasy of the mothers who vicariously participates in the battle by picturing to herself images of blood, which she in some ways finds satisfying. And I don't know if we could say finds even beautiful. The wife, upon hearing Coriolanus's mother's fantasy of seeing him stomping on the head of his enemy, says, his bloody brow, oh, Jupiter, no blood. Away, you fool, Volumnia responds. It more becomes a man than guilt his trophy. The breasts of Hecuba, when she did suckle Hector, look not lovelier than Hector's forehead when it spit forth blood. I think a question we could raise is whether the hyper-violence, the hyper-masculinity, the, the extremism, the absolutism of, <laughs> of the Coriolanus family has to do with its relationship to art or its, its translation of aesthetics from one idea into another. The, the lovely aspect of Hecuba for Volumnia is not the nourishing maternal feeding of the mother of the son, but rather the, the warrior image of not, not, not milk, but blood spouting from the hero's head. This speech comes from Act Three, Coriolanus was named consul by the plebeians, but then the tribunes informed him that they had taken back their votes. Coriolanus, in rage, gave a lengthy speech arguing against the plebeians being given political power. 
Now, to save his chances at being consul, Coriolanus's friends and mother have asked him to repent what he spoke, to suppress his true feelings, and to speak kindly to the people. This is his response. Well, I must do it. Away my disposition, and possess me some harlot's spirit. My throat of war be turned, which quiet with my drum, into a pipe small as an eunuch, or the virgin voice that babies lulls asleep. The smiles of knaves tent in my cheeks, and schoolboys' tears take up the glasses of my sight. A beggar's tongue make motion through my lips, and my armed knees, who bowed but in my stirrup, bend like his that hath received an alms. I will not do it, lest I surcease to honor mine own truth, and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. So in Acts 3, after being scolded by his mother and his surrogate father, Menenius, who say they'll help him with his political self-presentation, they coach him up very much in the terms of an, an, a director helping an actor. We'll prompt you, they tell him. They give him props, which tend to confirm his idea of the entire event to begin with, namely that these are emasculating props. His mother tells him to carry his bonnet in his hand. And because his mother asks him, his mother, who at the beginning of the play, we, we learn is the reason why he achieves these tremendous political feats, has been disappointed in him, his inability to be more politic and savvy with regard to becoming a consul. Because his mother asks him to do it, he says, well, I must do it, away my disposition and possess me some harlot spirit. My throat of war be turned, which choired with my drum into a pipe small as a eunuch. And here the accumulation of terms, harlot spirit, eunuch, his throat of war being turned into a pipe is very evocative of the language of who I call his dramatic sister in the other Roman play that takes place in a different context 400 years later, and that is Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra, for whom also the worst possible thing in the world is to be made part of someone else's show. At the end of that play, when Caesar intends to lead her in triumph in a Roman procession as a spoil of war, uh, she, as we know, chooses to kill herself rather than un endure such a spectacle. And she says, shall I see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore? Almost as if she was on the same wavelength with Coriolanus, who speaks the language of English antitheatricalists, whose moral point of um, view is that theater is fundamentally a vicious art and it leads to um, the spreading of vice and contagion and crime. For Coriolanus, theater and the staging of his self, his body, his history is tantamount to losing that self. He finds it a fundamental threat to a self that he continually defines in the language of the proper 
mine own self, mine own body, mine own mind. So in that speech, despite the prompting of Menenius and his mother and his seeming concession, he talks himself out of it, as he does earlier on stage in front of the Romans. He moves from, well, I must do it, to I will not do it by the time he arrives at the end of the speech, lest I surcease to honor mine own truth and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. And the phrase mine own truth is really key, I think, for understanding the problem of Coriolanus. What does it mean to have one's own truth? What does it mean to do that, especially when one's own identity is completely enmeshed with being the embodiment of something bigger than the self, the the state of Rome itself. Coriolanus embodies all of Roman ideals. His own truth would seem to come into conflict with a conception of Roman identity that is collective by definition. His own truth leads to the question of autonomy and to what degree one can have one's own self, one's own body, one's own story, one's own truth, and at the same time be part of a larger structure from which one also derives one's very sense of selfhood. This scene is from Act 4. The Romans have just learned that Coriolanus has joined forces with Aphidius to destroy Rome. Cominius describes the fearsome way that Coriolanus leads the Volscian army, and he and Menenius berate the tribunes for the fate they have brought upon the city, for they see no way of making peace with a Roman hero that they have banished from Rome. He is their god. He leads them like a thing made by some other deity than nature that shapes man better, and they follow him against us brats with no less confidence than boys pursuing summer butterflies or butchers killing flies. You have made good work, you and your apron men, you that stood so much upon the voice of occupation and the breath of garlic eaters. All the regions do smilingly revolt, and who resists are mocked for valiant ignorance and perish constant fools Who is it can blame him? Your enemies and his find something in him. We are all undone unless the noble man have mercy. Who shall ask it? The tribunes cannot do it for shame. The people deserve such pity of him as the wolf does of the shepherd. For his best friends, if they should say, be good to Rome, they charged him even as those should do that had deserved his hate and therein showed like enemies. Tis true. If he were putting to my house the brand that should consume it, I have not the face to say, beseech you, cease. You have made fair hands, you and your crafts. You have crafted fair. The tribunes do, in fact, banish Coriolanus for what they consider to be treason or threat to the the state and the citizens who rejoice and throw up their cap, all of the citizens, it's very clear in Shakespeare's stage directions, actually enjoy, as do all of the other Romans, for a short bit of time, peacetime. And 
the line is Rome sits safe. And we quickly hear, not for long, because there's news that Coriolanus has joined with his enemy, Ophidius, and he's coming. He is their god. He leaves the Volscians like a thing made by some other deity than nature that shapes man better. And they follow him against us brats with no less confidence than boys pursuing summer butterflies or butchers killing flies. Coriolanus has become the Volscians' god. And what is a god like in the passage? It's like a thing, like a thing made by some other deity than nature that shapes man better. And I think this is a really interesting question that Shakespeare's ex exploring about technology in a way. I mean, has technique, the transformation of the human being into something figured as a thing. Technology, I mean by methods of knowledge and learning and ways of understanding how to maximize your strength and in a way compensate for your weakness. The interesting thing about the transformation is that Shakespeare is returning to the earlier image of the butterfly that his own son had been chasing in a kind of idyllic scene until enraged, he tears it apart, he mammics it. Now, the enemy soldiers are pursuing Coriolanus the way boys pursue butterflies. He has become the butterfly. He has metamorphosed in a very surprising movement here because this will precede his continuing transformation into another kind of thing. But in the context of a character who up to this point had been understood as so intransigent, intransigent and non-transformational, non-transformable. He was resolutely who he was, at least in his own mind, resistant to change, and above all, resistance to a change that might be understood in terms of maturity, growing up from the warrior boy to the more mature statesman or something. Nevertheless, as we move to the closer to the ending of the play, the changes begin to mount up rapidly. And they're surprising, particularly if we return to the earlier questions of whether there's a room for beauty in, in any of this world defined by the conflict between who we really are and who we're supposed to be according to the ideals. Is, is art and beauty useful in bridging that gap? Up to now, we've seen both Volumnia and Coriolanus absolutely antithetical to art. They find art, if it doesn't have to do with action, and if it doesn't have to do with blood, unlovely and useless. But we have the striking image here of boys following, soldiers actually following Coriolanus as boys follow a butterfly. And I think it's an interesting connection and contrast to the butterfly that Coriolanus' own boy followed. This is the end of a phase for him. This is his last tragedy. After this, he's going to write a new form. The presence of art becomes more and more central to his interests and to, I think, his belief in it's at the heart of life. It's not a peripheral thing. And in this play, which seems to be so unlovely and so non-interested in any kind of aesthetics other than the aesthetics of horror that Volumnia likes, we, we have this central image of the butterfly.
Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. David Collins for Menenius, Citizens and Martius. I Shall Tell You a Pretty Tale. And for Cominius and Menenius, He is Their God. Joyce Branagh for Volumnia and Virgilia, If My Son Were My Husband. Keith Hamilton Cobb for Coriolanus, Well, I Must Do It. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Janet Edelman, Suffocating Mothers. Stanley Cavell, Who Does the Wolf Love? Reading Coriolanus. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. William Hazlitt, Characters of Shakespeare's Plays. Heather James, A Modern Perspective, Coriolanus. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of Coriolanus the 1997 Riverside Shakespeare, the 2010 New Cambridge Shakespeare, the 2013 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>